The goal of our table talks um, are for opinions to be heard um, and for experiences uh, to be shared. This is an opportunity for relationships to be built and for empathy to be felt. Uh, the ideas shared in this space may not necessarily reflect the attitude of the Table Youth Ministries or Christian Ministries Church, but our hope is that respectful dialogue and the empathetic nature um, of our uh, discussions can be used as an example um, for what it looks like to love people uh, well. Um, my goal is to ask questions uh, to you that um, if a random person were sitting here off the street, they may ask you a similar question. Um, and my goal is to be um, as balanced and as unbiased as possible um, regarding uh, the specific uh, topics and events that we talk about. So uh, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. Sound good? Okay. Let me just say, preface our conversation with this. Um, so as to avoid violating policies, I have to remain anonymous. And, and uh, furthermore, it's important that I note that the views that I'll express during the course of our conversation uh, are my own personal views as a individual police officer with 16 years in a medium-sized Midwestern um, police department and do not necessarily reflect the views of the agency where I serve or any larger body of police officers. Right. So, um, well, thank you for that. I mm -hmm. uh, I don't want uh, to get anyone in trouble. That's the that's the last thing uh, that I would want with this. So, um, why don't we start off talking um, a little bit about why you got into the criminal justice system? Why? That's a good question. <laughs> especially looking, especially nowadays, I ask myself the same thing. But <laughs> uh, there were several several reasons. First of all. Um, my original intent was to, uh, I'd moved back out to California, I was going to uh, undertake a, a program at San Diego State University that was a combination Juris Doctor and Master Social Work program. That was my intent, um, but life happened and I ultimately decided not to go into graduate school. Um, and so when my wife and I moved to Missouri some years back, um, I needed, needed a job. And the simple fact of the matter is law enforcement had been in the back of my head for a long time. Um, and I love the United States of America. And my choice to serve first as a United States Marine and then some years later as a police officer was rooted in that love of America and a deeply rooted belief that truth and justice were noble pursuits. In addition to that, um, you know, I had a profound desire overarching desire really to be a, a light in people's lives and I perceived that working as a police officer would give me a very unique and powerful opportunity to be there among people in their darkest hour in life and I perceived that you know that would be a, an amazing opportunity from a Christian perspective to, to be a voice of the healing power of Jesus Christ in people's lives, hmm. and uh, so that was a that was kind of what cinched my choice to uh, enter into this profession. Yeah. So it, it kind of sounds to me like it began with a general desire of wanting to do well by people, sure. and then eventually morphed into something that we see sure. today. Mm -hmm. um, so my first question is: um, 
why are the police responding to protesters in militaristic fashion? You know, the stuff that we see on the news is so often um, either tear gas being shot into crowds or uh, rubber bullets. And um, I think we see a lot of that on the back end. Um, but what, is, what does that look like from the perspective of someone in law enforcement? You ask, why are the police responding to protesters in a militaristic fashion? Let me first say that the wording of that question betrays an underlying bias and from my perspective flows out of a narrative that demonizes the law enforcement profession. The phrasing of the question also leads me to believe that the Inquisitor has never been in a position where he stood face to face with an angry and volatile or potentially violent group of people that grossly outnumbered him and his fellow peacekeepers. Would you define the term for me militaristic fashion though? How, how, what, what do you mean by that? Right. Um, so when I say militaristic, what I mean is uh, militarized. The modern day policing that we see, they have uh, they have Humvees, they have tanks, they have riot gear, um, they have um, things that um, would otherwise be looked at outside of the police um, context as military um, okay. or resembling the military. The answer to that question is multifaceted, let me just say that. First of all, police agencies, agencies are and have been historically referred to as quasi-military institutions. It's a title that incorporates elements of their organizational structure, for example, officers have different ranks, much like the military, and their function, particularly during times of large-scale civil unrest. Police recognize that any large gathering of people, and particularly people who have gathered in support of or in opposition to an emotionally charged event or purpose, possess an incredible potential for engaging in violent or destructive behavior. And as it is their sworn duty to protect persons and property, it is incumbent upon police agencies to be equipped and prepared to accomplish that purpose effectively in any situation to include controlling and disbanding any gathering that meets the legal definition of an unlawful assembly or riot, both of which are clearly defined criminal acts codified as such in both state and federal law. You know, I think it's important at this point in our discussion to define terms because any discussion of this sort in order to be meaningful has to proceed from a clear understanding of the terms being employed and the applicable state, local, and federal laws. So I'm just going to read a real quick, just so everybody listening understands what we're talking about when we use these different terms. Right. First of all, um, an, what is an unlawful assembly? It's basically, by definition, in the state of Missouri, the meeting of three or more persons may constitute an unlawful assembly if the persons have an illegal purpose or if their meeting will breach the public peace or the community. That by definition um, from revised statutes is an unlawful assembly and to engage in an unlawful assembly is actually a crime. It's a, it's a misdemeanor crime. So they could actually be breaking the law just by being there. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. Um, and then what is a riot? Um, and for this I'm going to go to the uh, U.S. Criminal Code, the Federal Code. And it's a little ambiguous, but it's bear with me. It says this is this is how the 
the United States government defines a riot in legal terms. It is, says an act or acts of violence by one or more persons, part of an assemblage of three or more persons, which act or act shall constitute a clear and present danger of, or shall result in, damage or injury to the property of any other person, or to the person of any other individual, or a threat, or threats of the commission of an act or acts of violence, by one or more persons, part of an assemblage of three or more persons, having individually or collectively the ability of immediate execution of such threats, or th such threat or threats, where the performance of the threatened acts or acts of violence would constitute a clear and present danger of, or would result in, damage or injury to the property or any other person, or to the property of any other person, or to the person of any other individual. Right. So in other words, when you have an assembly, three or more persons, and that assembly damages property, or causes violence or harms an individual, a person, or threatens to or to cause harm to an individual or person, um, that is by definition of federal law a riot. Hmm. Also, a criminal act in and of itself. So, getting back to your question, I'm going to reread your question here. Why are the police responding to protesters in a militar militaristic fashion? Um, let me put it this way now. With these laws and definitions fresh in our minds, let us look at the stated role of the police. And again, we're going to pretty much be defining terms here. Right. It says, first, for example, the department where I serve, and I'm sure virtually every department throughout this nation, operates under a rather comprehensive, if not exhaustive, body of operational guidelines and organizational values. For my particular agency, the very first two and I would argue the primary or most essential organizational values are number one, enforcing the law, number two, preventing crime. Yet even more importantly, I think we need to look at what I consider to be the origin of what I consider to be the overarching purpose of policing bodies, and we find that purpose articulated 2,000 years ago in the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote the following. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And that, in a nutshell, is Almighty God's ordained and very succinctly articulated purpose for policing institutions. So I ask you, in light of what I've just stated, how can a police agency most effectively respond to a large body of protesters once the very first criminal act, be it violence, vandalism, threats of violence or vandalism, or simply the failure to obey a lawful order to disperse? 
and in order to kind of paint a picture of that, um, I got to thinking about this. And, you know, I learned very early on in my policing career that the very best way to accomplish the purposes that I was called to accomplish every day, and most importantly, to go home safely to my family at the end of that day, particularly in those myriad situations which are volatile or have a significant potential to become volatile, was to go in with an overwhelming speed and, when appropriate, show of force in order to overcome resistance before the potential for resistance became the actuality of resistance. And preventing resistance is the only way to keep all parties involved, the police and the people that they're encountering, safe through the duration of the encounter. You know, a good example of that would be search warrants for decades. Um, police, off, police agencies in this nation have executed just thousands upon thousands and thousands upon thousands of search warrants. And the way they do that is this. How do they do that? They go in with the element of surprise, they go in with tremendous speed, and they go in with a, just a, an extraordinary show of force. You're referring to no-knock warrants? I'm referring to, well, the no-knock and knock warrants, both. Yeah. Even on a knock warrant, it's a search warrant, bam, the door's in, and there you got six, seven, eight guys in there with machine guns getting everybody detained. Right. You know why that's so effective? Why? Because people don't have an opportunity to respond. They're overwhelmed by that show of force, and so they're safely detained. I mean, in all in 16 years, I can think of one person in our agency who was shot during a search warrant, and that's when he tried to grab the officer's gun and, and, and fight it away from him. Mm -hmm. And you know, they, there's dozens of those yeah. every, every week, every couple weeks. And so, in light of that, um, Let's think about this for a second. You've got, a, you've got a group of protesters. Let's say 2,000 protesters. I'm sure a lot of these protests probably had more. And let's say you have 100 police officers out there in riot gear. Um, just by sheer numbers, can you see where the, those, those 100 police officers that are set up in a in a line and monitoring a group of 2,000 protesters, you see, already start to see how those police officers are at a disadvantage already. Because if that, work, that crowd were to turn on those police officers, uh, you know what, that's 20 to one. Mm -hmm. And those are not uncommon numbers for situations like this at all. The, the numbers could be much, much greater than that. So, in light of that, I think that right there gives you a pretty good idea. How else would an organization whose purpose is to um, enforce the law and prevent crime, how are they going to be prepared at a moment's notice to deal with a crowd of 2,000 people if and when that crowd begins to riot or engage in criminal activity? So it sounds a little bit to me like a pray for the best, prepare for the worst sure. kind of scenario. That's got to be stressful on, on the side of the police officers. Every situation you walk into is a police officer stressful. 
I mean, as a police officer, you're trained to expect every encounter to turn into a, a volatile encounter, and you're trained to be prepared for any encounter to turn into a lethal encounter. You have to. You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a, a fellow who, who, who perceived some of these things we're talking about today very differently than I, and we were having a good dialogue, and he made the statement. He's like, well, yeah, I get that, but you know what? I think police officers, they need to think long and hard before they use lethal force. And as I pointed out to him, if a police officer in a lethal force situation thinks long and hard, he's dead. Hmm. You keep, we're not afforded that luxury. And that's something that most people who have never been in that situation and walked in those shoes, they don't realize how quickly these situations that police find themselves in can turn lethal. I, I, uh, I think it's one thing to say, um, you know, those, those situations can turn lethal quickly, but a lot of people don't think about it like that, right? They think if you're going to choose to take someone's life, it, it's a, it needs to be a well thought out process. What's a, what's a way that you think that people can experience that or, or sympathize with that better, that idea of that situation can turn so quickly? I remember, and I don't know a great deal about it, but back in uh, when they were having unrest in St. Louis and Ferguson a couple years ago. With I, Michael Brown? Yeah. I remember seeing something on, somebody showed me a video, and it was uh, of an individual who was um, an outspoken advocate for whatever was being um, protested about or sought during that time. And he was invited by a group to come and experience um, um, tactical training, mm -hmm. basically shoot and no shoot type scenarios. Mm -hmm. And it was it was very eye opening for him because you know what this is the training that every police officer goes through in the academy. You're put out there in these situations where you have a split second to decide: do I shoot or do I not shoot? You have an absolute split second. Mm -hmm. Um, there's been cases I've seen, because we try and keep up on this stuff, but cases where somebody's out of the car and they start to resist and all of a sudden they jump into that car and look like they're grabbing for an object. Um, well, I'll put it this way. I've got a, a, one of my closest friends um, at the department I work at. Um, about a year and a half, two years ago, he went to a, just a routine burglary in progress call. Um, he, she was the first officer who showed up, got there by himself and as he got there he saw a guy walking away from the house that was being burglarized and uh, so he went told him stop the guy and uh, the guy ended up resisting so um, to try and get away so my friend he went had to go hands-on with the guy and as he's trying to gain control of the guy he gets the guy down on the ground the guy's fighting with him and next thing and next thing my friend knows is while well, during this physical fight that they're engaged in he notices that a pistol has come out and is shoved into his torso and he's able to get back away from it draw his pistol and shoot this guy several times and and he killed the individual um it happens that quick it always 
almost always happens that quick. Mm-hmm. Um, not what three, three or four months ago, um, two of our officers went. Uh, there was an active shooter who was a, a mobile active shooter, and uh, you know, two of our officers went out, and uh, the uh, they ultimately determined this guy had moved into a convenience store and uh, they stopped to check on a guy out in the parking lot who had been shot and when they did that um, the suspect happened to come back to the front window of the convenience store saw our two officers um, bent down checking on this guy who had been shot and he shot them both killing one of them Three weeks ago, four weeks ago now, um, one of our officers, well, an individual showed up at police department headquarters and was causing a disturbance and urinated on the front doors as he left and then left in a vehicle. And a couple officers who happened to be in the in headquarters at the time went out to check on the situation and the guy had gotten in his vehicle, but he just drove around the block and drove back. And as soon as he pulled into the parking lot, he zeroed in on and gunned it and ran over one of our officers. When they got him out, he got shot like by one of the other responding officers. When they got him out of the vehicle, all he said was, you should have known this was coming. He'll never walk again. The officer. Never walk again. He's got kids. So, that is why people need to understand, people need to realize the fact that decisions have to be made very fast. And we're not afforded the luxury of second guessing what we're going to do because if we stop to think we die wow. and you walk you go to work every day with that realization hmm. so I uh, I can't imagine that pressure that pressure being put on on you on a daily basis on going to every single call um, it, it's sobering it is like that. and you know people just don't realize it and I, I wouldn't expect people to understand that unless they've done it and experienced it hmm. um, but you know these are things that's for me personally that's why I accepted this invitation is because you know what people need to understand these things right. in order to have a kind of a, a legitimate and robust understanding of some of the dialogue that's taking place in our nation right now People need to understand why cops have to do what they do. So, um, kind of tying this back into uh, where we started with the question about protesting and, and things like that, mm-hmm. do you believe that there is a justifiable reason to riot? Or no. And why? What is rioting? By definition, right. Breaking the law—it's a crime. Yeah. That's so. No, there's there's 
is is there legitimate reason perhaps to um, peacefully assemble? Sure. And the Constitution of the United States of America ensures that right. But the key word is peaceably. As soon as peaceably is met, that constitutional right, well, people who gather peaceably are, are well within their, their, their constitutional rights. And that, that, that cannot be infringed upon. That's, that's vital to who we are as a nation. But what people need to understand is as soon as that assembly ceases to be peaceable and becomes unlawful or riotous, it's no longer covered by that constitutional protection. And it has then become a criminal act. And what's, what are police officers responsible for doing? Again, enforcing law, preventing crime. That's, that's what we're called to do. And unfortunately, what we've seen all too often um, is we've seen civic leaders throughout this nation, and as particularly in many, if not most, of the larger cities who have either been just incapacitated by fear or who have actually fanned the flames of this riotous criminal behavior that's been occurring. Mm -hmm. And that's what's most disturbing for us as police officers. Um, we've got a job to do and we want to do it effectively. And most importantly, we want to go home safely every night. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, I think when, these, when this first broke out, I think it was St. Louis, there were four cops shot. And I, I believe it was in one one day of rioting. Um, you know, why do we respond to these things in a military militaristic fashion um, in order to protect property and save lives? That's why. And there's no other way to do it. I think that's a a very uh, humble way, a very uh, meek way to kind of look at um, policing in those situations of rioting. And I think that gets neglected a lot of times whenever you just see um, people on the other side of the barrier with, with bloody eyes or coughing on blood or something. So I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that perspective. Um, I think, I think uh, for at least for a minute here, I would like to separate the riots that we see now mm -hmm. from the idea of rioting so um, or the idea of unrest um, so I think rioting right now is looked at as a way to kind of jar the system um, to shake things up and to make people um, accountable of where they're at um, and a place that I that I see um, rioting um, and you said you said earlier uh, you were referring to Romans and talking about Paul. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that you have underlying morals that come from the Constitution and things like that. But under that, you also have biblical principles that drive all of those. Correct. Um, so with that, I um, when I when I look at the Bible and when I think about things like this, I can't help um, but notice um, Jesus 
um, in Matthew 21, um, going into the temple and turning over the tables. Um, he saw something that was unjust, and he responded to it by vandalism, by by turning tables and by breaking things and by um, by calling them um, uh, by calling them out on on turning something that was holy into something um, that was unholy. So, um, how do you do you separate those two things? Do you separate rioting from what you see Jesus do there, or or how do you justify that, or is it or is it the same? Well, I guess I hadn't I hadn't thought of that question, and uh, but I guess my response to it is this: um, Who is Jesus Christ? He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate, wasn't he? God in the flesh. What is the origin of right and wrong? According to Jesus. What is the origin of right and wrong? It is God. It is God. It is God. Yes. So, you can look at another side of that um, where they're talking about, well, Peter and Peter and Christ were talking and uh, they were going into the temple and uh, one of the attendants there asked Peter, does your, not, your master not pay the temple tax? And what did Christ do? He said, you know what, because to satisfy it, um, let us go and uh, go, go pull up a fish out of the sea and look in its mouth and you'll find the money to pay the tax. Um, another example would be, um, and this is in reference to the Mosaic Law, but you know what, it was, a, it was a, an occupied theocracy of sorts at that time in Israel. Um, when Christ healed the leper, what did he tell him to do? Uh, he said, go yeah. and do everything that the yeah. law prescribed the for legal, you to do. Yeah, the legal side of it. Yeah. As, as a result of your healing. So I would say that um, Christ certainly did honor the law. And, you know, God is a God of order. God is a God of justice. Micah 6, 8 says what? I've shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Justice is important to God. Order is important to God. In that particular situation of Christ entering the temple, he was God in the flesh. He transcends the laws of man, even, even the Mosaic law. Um, he said, what? I am Lord of the Sabbath. Um, so he transcends that. There are times where God calls us, like Peter, Peter says, is it you decide for yourself, is it better for, for us to obey God or for to obey man? There are times when obeying God is going to require us to disobey man. But in the everyday scheme of things, we as followers of Jesus Christ and children of God are called to live in accordance with the law of the land where we live. Paul makes it very clear there and, and it's, it's, it's clear elsewhere in scripture. So the, the example you cite is basically God trying to show the people and particularly the, the evil and wicked people the evil of their ways. Mm -hmm. I don't see that going on right now. 
I see is basically the promulgation of um, things like critical legal studies and critical race theory, which were philosophies developed back in the 1970s that basically seek to undermine the Judeo-Christian principle of law is law, law is objective reality, law transcends societies, and man, law is law. And basically what we're seeing today is if, if you look at it back in, it started in the late 1970s with what's called critical legal studies, and then ultimately that broke off into different um, elements, one of which is referred to as crit critical race theory. And we could sit here and go through definitions of those, but they're pretty long and drawn out. But the long and the short of it is it's saying no law isn't objective, formalistic reality. Law is kind of what society thinks it should be at the time hmm. is the best way I can describe it in very simplistic terms. Um, so that's what we're seeing now. Basically, the way I see this is um, an attempt to do away with the concept that, you know, law is what it is and society's role is to let people live in freedom within the parameters of established law because law is ultimately by and large universal. Everybody knows you don't steal, you don't kill. You don't do a lot of things. And it, its origins are in God's will for mankind. That's my perspective on that. That's good. It's a it's a hard balance, what you're talking about, of obeying the laws of man that have been set up, but then when it is required of you for the right reasons from God mm -hmm. to violate those laws of man. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an upside-down concept that we um, kind, of, kind of struggle with. At least I do, at sure. least. Um, and I think I think that gives us a little bit of um, a little bit more perspective on why these people might be doing what they're doing out on the streets. Why um, is that? I believe it's because they see injustice being done, and because um, what's the injustice? Or can I ask questions, or do you want me no, to say you, you, abs you absolutely can? Because I don't, I don't know that I, I is there are there have there been situations where. Um, Things like excessive force have been you sure is that gonna is that gonna happen? Absolutely. It's my understanding. Last time I looked, I think there's about ten million arrests made in this nation each year. Wow. Now when you and a good number of those arrests are going to um, involve various levels of resistance by those being arrested. Yeah. And anytime you have that you're going to have a significant potential for um, the occasional excess in the application of the necessary force right. to um, affect those arrests. And, but you say injustice, and, 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 right. and that's what I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So I think what we're getting at is um, whether there is systemic racism, whether there is systemic oppression, or whether it's an individualistic problem, right? So do we see problems with the police force as a whole, or do we see problematic police officers? I have... Give me an example of what you just referred to as systemic racism. 
Um, racial racial profiling in policing. Um, Give me an example of that. Uh, over policing in black and brown neighborhoods. Um, so we. Oh. Who says that? There's over policing being done in black and brown neighborhoods um, because the crime rate is higher there. The, sure. the debate the debate has always been: Is there more crime in black and brown neighborhoods because there's more cops there, or because there's just more crime in black and brown neighborhoods? Right. Well, I would offer in response to that. I would offer. Um, I would like to introduce some facts yeah. into the dialogue here. And I'm going to ask you to read this. This is from the uh, United States Bureau of Justice Statistics. It's a uh, federal agency tasked with documenting um, criminal justice and other statistics. And if you would, just read that, that line right there. Um, in 2005, offending rates of blacks were more than seven times higher than the rates of whites. Um, so when you say there's injustice or over-policing of, to use your phrase, black and brown neighborhoods, um, I don't know that I would agree with the fact that there is quote-unquote over-policing. Um, again, we're going to go back to what is the purpose, the stated and established purpose of law enforcement to... Um, prevent crime, and to enforce the law. Hmm. So, if I as a police officer know my job is to prevent crime and to enforce the law, and I, because of whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, is what Solomon says and what I build my life on, I want to do that to the very best of my ability. Every day I put on that uniform and go to work. If I am to be an effective police officer, I'm going to work where, where the crime occurs. I'm going to work where the crime occurs. And wherever that may be, I mean, cops know where the crime occurs. Right. Just the way it is. Um, and if there's a great deal more crime, and especially the serious violent crime that occurs in this neighborhood... That's where the cops are going to be. Whether that be a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood. Whether it be, I mean, in the city where I work, that basically means you go north and you go west. <laughs> and in those areas, those high crime areas, there's pockets of um, um, African American communities. There's pockets of uh, predominantly white communities. Doesn't matter. I mean, you go where the crime is. But obviously, by these findings, and, and they typically stay, or it's typically stated that homicide rates are used as kind of a general barometer for overall violent crime rates because they, the proportions committed by different groups tend to follow the same same pattern. Um, so in this case, if you've got uh, any group that's offending at seven times the rate of other groups, where is the attention going to go? On that group. On that group. It's just that simple. So, and I'm going to throw in one more. Yeah, important, go for it. 
factor. Um, and this is to this is to address what you said or what you what I perceive to be a statement you made indicating that there's it's established in some way that there's injustice by the way police departments um, there's systemic problems in the systemic way. problems okay I'm going to say this and this is referring to uh, officer involved shootings fatal officer involved shootings right. um, it's from a uh, 2019 or 2019 study conducted it's entitled The Officer Characteristics and Racial Disparities in Fatal Officer-Involved Shootings. It was kind of a meta-analysis of available data regarding the race of people who were shot by the police, the race of the, the officers that ended up shooting and killing people, etc. And some conclusions, it drew some very important conclusions that I haven't heard talked about in the media, but I think that shed a lot of light on this discussion we're talking about right now. The first thing it says is this. It says, we did not find evidence for anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparity in police use of force across all shootings. And if anything, found anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. And then they go on to say this. One of our clearest results is that violent crime rates strongly predict the race of a person fatally shot. At a high level, reducing rate-specific violent crime should be an effective way to reduce fatal shootings of black and Hispanic adults. Now, when I read these facts, um, my perception is that, you know what, I don't know that there is quote-unquote systemic racism. And if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a Thomas Sowell at all. He was a uh, just an extraordinarily gifted in, um, economist and social scientist of the last century. He's about 90 years old now, but he's still still working, is my understanding. But he's put out just some extraordinarily um, good material that deals with this issue of so-called systemic racism. Um, he's actually a, an African-American economist, but a very, very gifted and very very wise individual, and, and I would encourage our listeners to uh, review some of the things he's written on this because they shed a great deal of light mm -hmm. on this issue of so-called systemic racism. Right. I mean, I have I've been a police officer for over sixteen years, and I can honestly say that I have never once in those 16 years ever made an enforcement decision based on somebody's race. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly say that nobody I know of in those 16 years has ever made an enforcement decision based on somebody's race. Well, period. I commend you for that. Now, in one of the questions that you had given me in advance asked about um, do, is there a racism right now? Or are we going to get there? Am I jumping ahead? No, you're it says, good. have you seen racism in your career? And the simple fact of the matter is I have. And what, I, what I've seen over the last X number of years is something that plays out every day, hundreds of times, I'm sure, across this nation. Is that 
any time, I shouldn't say that, no, oftentimes, when I have made traffic stops or had other calls for service where I encountered people, African-American residents of the community I serve, very often what I get as soon as I encounter this person is just profound, illicit, and repulsive accusations of being racist before I even say a word. Mm. You racist this, you racist that, you're only doing this because I'm black. Happens hundreds of times a day throughout this nation. Mm. Everywhere. Um, not only that, and I've seen, but another thing that happens especially, and I remember one time specifically this happened to me, um, years ago I was working uh, a vice unit, plainclothes street enforcement stuff, and I made a, a traffic stop on a uh, on a road that's that's primarily um, most of the residents on this stretch of road are, are African American. So I just made a, a traffic stop. Um, somebody uh, I was familiar with uh, engaged in a lot of criminal activity, and as soon as I I made the stop, I was riding alone that day. Um, so as soon as I made the stop based on where I was and who I was stopping, I called for another unit because I knew from experience it was going to get volatile. And so I go up and I contact the individual, just do what I do every day, and, and, and this is the reason I stopped, etc., etc. No sooner that I would gotten out of my car and started walking up there, I saw people start coming out of houses. So within a matter of um, less than a minute, I would say, no longer is it just me with the individual in the car, but now I've got people coming, basically surrounded me. From eight, eight, ten people within a minute, I would say, are basically surrounding me. And they jump in on it, and they're, you effing this, you effing that, what you doing here, yada, 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 yada. Now, I'm one man, and I've got people that I can see, and I also know I've got people behind me that I can't see, and I know I'm dealing with a very potentially dangerous individual sitting in this car. That's the kind of racism that I've seen for 16 years as a police officer. I have not seen white-on-black racism, but I've seen a great deal of black-on-white racism. Coming from? Coming from outside people we encounter. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, so... I think that kind of leads into this idea of we have, I mean, from what you said um, and from the statistics that you brought, there's um, blacks are seven times more likely to be offenders um, than what we've seen um, in the past. And I think that kind of feeds into this. But why do you think specifically in black and brown neighborhoods, there's such a negative connotation or such a negative view of police? I think there's multiple reasons for that. You know, I, I said something recently on social media that I think is so vitally important. What I said is simply this. Parenting, not policies and procedures, is what's going to, is, is, the, is the cause of 90% of the problem that we have out here today in reference to the things that we're talking about today. Because it's really simple. If people parent effectively, they won't raise kids who are racist, who hate minorities. 
At the same time, if people parent effectively, they won't raise kids that are going to be out there gangbanging. It's just that simple. It's all about parenting. Everything we're talking about today rises and falls on parenting. Hmm. Programs aren't going to do it. Policies aren't going to do it. It's parenting. One child at a time. Parenting each and every child to, to live well. To apply himself with diligence and purpose and focus to live well and to thrive. To love other people. And, you know, that is what's going to transform this nation. Hmm. Um, but I kind of digress there. I'm sorry. What was your question no, again? Yeah, no, that was good. Um, talking about in black and brown neighborhoods, why they have such a negative connotation. In, and from what it sounds like, the majority of that goes back to parenting. It does. Yeah. Because you know what? And I've seen it in kids as four or five years old. Wow. That, I mean, just hate the police. Wow. Where does a four or five year old child learn to hate the police? Hmm. There's only one place. The home. The home. And now, on the flip side of that, I will say this. I mean, it goes without saying that 30, 40 years ago and back, there was terrible, I mean, terrible stuff going on. Right. Obviously, there was right. terrible stuff going on. And you know what? There's nothing anybody can do who's going to change a thing that's ever happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, one can certainly understand why there has historically been a, a mistrust of police. Because you know what? Back in the 1960s and before that, there, were some, there, were, there was institutional racism in this country on a profound scale. I mean, everybody knows that. Yeah. Um, but you know what? We as a country have come a long way. But I think one of the biggest problems is, and it gets more in-depth than that, we could start talking about the, the impact that social programs have had on uh, minority communities and things, and it's been exceedingly, devastatingly detrimental. Um, and it's created generations of large numbers of, of not just minority communities, but lower socioeconomic families in this country that develop this entitlement mentality. But that's probably a discussion for another time. Yeah. But, you know, so many kids from... And I hope it's not offensive to use the word minority, but so many, so many kids from minority families grow up hating the police. Even though, by and large, at least where I and I can I can't speak for what happens in places like St. Louis, L.A., New York, Chicago. Um, you couldn't pay me enough to be a cop in these those places because I've seen what it what it's like in a smaller community. And just uh, what cops have to deal with. Um, I can't imagine what they're dealing with in, in some of these bigger cities. And you got to think. Let's think back to us for a second. I gave you that one scenario of, of me making that traffic stop and, and, and pointed out the fact that, you know what, many, 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 many times throughout the years, I mean, if I would encounter a, 
of a minority citizen or a group of minority citizens so often it would it would just be a it would be a struggle from from the minute I showed up mm-hmm. because it's just you it's you expletive laden so and so I mean why are you why are you here what are you doing well I got called here I, I think I think it all ties in right your your experience and someone else's experience all play into what's going on right now and I think I think experience is kind of the filter that we look th- um, through the world at. Our, our experience is the filter in our worldview, right? To a large extent, yes. Right, Certainly. because because those those minority neighborhoods, as you've called them, they have experiences with the police that you haven't had, right? And and that looks different for them, and therefore it shapes their view of the police, or it shapes their view, and and whether those views are right or wrong, and whether whether or not we agree with them, it comes down to this has been my experience, so why would I expect anything different, right? And what you're what you're saying is it is different, and from your perspective, it has been different, but they also don't see that, so. I think a big voice right now is change needs to happen. Change needs to come. Change needs to... um... You know how change happens? How? Imagine, if you will, any particular segment of our nation, any particular group or community. Imagine, if you will, you're a cop. And for a generation, maybe for... 10, 15 years. This particular group, subgroup in the community where you police has lived just good lives. They don't run around and shoot. They don't steal, by and large. They just, they live their lives and they thrive. Imagine, and imagine that in the years preceding this time, that wasn't the case. Imagine if that community just decided, you know what, we're going to change. We're going we're gonna to parent well. We're going we're gonna to do things differently so that, you know what, ten year, say 10 years of that, how much attention after 10 years of them living well, how much attention do you think the police are going to be putting on them? Far less than they would None. be. None, unless there's a traffic accident that they have to go deal with. None. The only way to deal with the problems you're referring to, because police have a job to do. Police are going to go out and they're going to fight crime. That's their job. That's their calling and that's their purpose. And as long as there's significant crime, the police are going to be in there. And the more the police are in there, the greater the potential is for, you know what, situations to get out of hand. Are there bad cops out there? Sure. Just like there's bad lawyers, there's bad preachers, there's bad everything. Sure. And they need to be find, found out. They need to be weeded out. And if they've done something overtly criminal, they need to be prosecuted for that. But here's the deal. You change the community and the cops won't even look that way because nothing's going on there. As long as any group of people or any community, I should say, a large number of those people are engaging in criminal behavior, the police are going to be there working very hard and diligently 
to eliminate that behavior. Because you know what? That's their job. Their job is to protect. And people can't enjoy freedom if they're worried about, and I mean, you look at the, the community where I serve. 15 years ago when I started, you'd have a shooting every couple weeks. Today, there's almost, you could, you could pretty much, there's about a shooting incident a night. Wow. Every day. People aren't always getting, but there's, there's almost, I bet you it averages out to about a shooting a day. Wow. Some, and that's a small amount of time for that kind of change to take place, but it has. Yeah. Um, so, you know what? The answer to the problem is eliminate crime in your community and the police won't be there. It's so, just that simple. So it sounds like the the call to change, you're saying the, the real call to change needs to happen in the communities. Sure. Um, and, and through that change, we will see change in police activity sure. in those communities. You know, would it work the other way around? I mean, you can change, you can do whatever you want with the police department. You could you could you could send them all home for a week. You could you could have them doing anything you want. Is that going to reduce crime in this community? No, crime's going to increase. So regardless of what the police do, if you've got a, a crime-ridden community, if police back off. And we've seen this in Atlanta. We've seen it in New York just in the last few weeks. What happens when police back off? Crime's going to increase. So logically then, you can't help but realize the fact that, you know what, regardless of what the police do, crime's going to occur. And the less involved in that community the police are, the more crime is going to occur. Why is that? Solomon said it really well. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. People need the police until, you know what, here's the deal. The level at which people need to be governed from outside is going to be in opposite proportion to the level they choose to govern themselves. Hmm. If they govern themselves, they're not going to need any governing from outside. But if they don't govern themselves, guess what? If you're going to have a civil society, somebody, the authority that Paul talks about in the 13th chapter of Romans, has got to come in there and govern them if they refuse to govern themselves. Hmm. It's that simple. So it only works one way. The only way to solve the problems is if the community reduces its crime. Hmm. Irregardless of what the police do. Right. That's simple. Yeah. Do you Do you believe that what you're talking about through community reform um, and things like that, do you think defunding the police could be an aspect of that, or do you think that it's it's separate from that? And kind of to go along with that, what do you see as defunding the police? Well, I, from what I, what I see in, 
in uh, New York, it's about a billion dollars off the, I don't know what their budget is, maybe eight, ten billion dollars massive. They got 27,000 or 37,000 cops now, nowadays. Defunding the police is, in my estimation, the, it's absurd. Um, and I've got an example, a very clear example of the absurdity of it. Um, and this is something I saw recently. The I'm sure you've heard of the CHOP group that was um, that set up camp in Seattle. They call themselves CHAZ or then CHOP, that group that basically... You hadn't heard of this? Uh -uh. Oh goodness gracious! There was a when this pro these all these protests started. Uh, there was a, a group of a large group of protesters in Seattle that basically took over a six city block area of the city for. Um, they finally just went in there um, with about a week ago and got rid of the last of them, but for about five, six weeks, four weeks, something like that, this group of protesters basically set up what they called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone hmm. initially, and then they had to change the name. Their, their lawyers said, yeah, we need to do things differently. Um, so there was, they, there was no police? No, they, they wouldn't let the police in there. Right. Okay. And this so is to a, answer your question, what does it mean to defund the police? This is... One of the and the the person who put these out the the impromptu I guess leader of this little organization or this little group that had basically occupied um, just vandalized ridiculously this area they took over a police precinct out there oh, wow and uh, can't believe you, you haven't heard of this but anyhow um, this was in Seattle yeah so. they gave a list of uh, I don't know thirty some demands. And that's and that's one of the things we're seeing. Um, for example, hey, this is her. the uh, so-called organizer of this group stated, "quote unquote I am not here to peacefully protest. I'm here to d disrupt until my demands are met." Hmm. And they put out thirty-some demands. Number one of which was. The Seattle Police Department and attached court system are beyond reform. We do not request reform. We demand abolition. We demand that the Seattle Council and the mayor defund and abolish the Seattle Police Department and the attached criminal justice apparatus. This means 100% of funding, including existing pensions for Seattle police. And at an equal level of priority, we also demand that the city disallow the operations of ICE and the city of Seattle. And then number two was, uh, we demand that the use of armed force be banned entirely. No guns, no batons, no riot shields, no chemical weapons, especially against those exercising their First Amendment rights and Americans to protest. So, to answer your question, what is defund the police? I think it means different things to different people. Right. Um, and I think, me personally, as a police officer, I think it's absurd. And the reason why is, like I just pointed out, um, regardless of what police do in any community, crime's going to occur. In a, in a, in a crime-saturated community, crime's going to occur. 
whether the police are in there um, enforcing heavily or whether they just take a hands-off approach. And when they take that hands-off approach, um, that's when crime's just going to get worse. I mean, you look at what happened in New York. New York was horrific. And then certain policies, controversial policies, such as stuff, such as stop and frisk and things of that nature, but were implemented. What did it do to the crime rate? It drove it down drastically. Drastically. When police go in and enforce the law, and which is their duty, their responsibility, um, you know, crime goes down. Um, when police aren't allowed to do their jobs, crime goes up. Hmm. It's just that simple. Um, what's going to happen if you defund the police? Crime is going to be rampant, and you're likely to see some manifestation of a civil war in this country. Wow. Um, and the reason I say that is because the gist of what's going on is there is a desire to upend, to completely rewrite what America is all about. And this is fueled by decades of academia throughout America being controlled by a liberal ideology with Marxist inclinations. And that's ultimately what this is all about. That's my perception of what this mm -hmm. is all about. Yeah. The race the race thing, the defund the police, those are just small facets of the bigger picture of what's going on in America right now. A, a symptom. Correct. Uh, yeah. Or not a symptom per se, maybe even a, a tool. A byproduct. A tool. I would I would okay. use the word tool. But well, I, uh, I I hear you. I hear you on these on these different things. But one of the things that we talked about earlier was just the overwhelming nature of this profession, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine the the mental toll that it would take preparing yourself to go into every situation for eight, ten, twelve hours every encounter you have with someone to imagine it going lethal, to imagine how do I get out of this situation? How do I go home alive? Right? That would be exhausting, I would imagine. It is. It's called and, contingency planning and that's what you do. Yeah. They won't. And so I, um, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about how defunding the police means different things to different people, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things being proposed is defunding the police and um, putting funds towards Things like um, nonviolent calls. So instead of the police responding um, to a call, it would be some other entity that doesn't have that doesn't have a gun and that's trained in, in social work or that's. Um, why are you laughing on things like this? Two days ago, I was uh, I work plain clothes now. I'm not on the street, um, but I, I happen to be um, driving to the north side of town to. to um, to contact somebody or something like that and I heard it I had my radio on heard a call on the radio it was a call of a a guy wearing nothing but a mask walking down the street in a residential neighborhood barking at the dogs and when I say nothing but a mask I mean nothing but a mask <laughs> yes and I'm like yeah 
and I don't respond to call. It's just not what I do now. Right. Um, but there were a couple. They sent a couple officers, just standard call like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to send two officers at least. Um, so anyhow, uh, after the first officer checks out, um, he says on the radio, I can't find the guy. I'll be checking in this area. And it was a residential area that's adjacent to a wooded area. with, And then behind that is a massive train depot where they got like 15 tracks wide wow. train depot. Um, but anyhow, uh, and then after a minute or two, you hear that officer, and he's still the only one on scene at that point, get on the radio and call for an expedited um, response and you can hear there's some yelling and whatnot going on over the radio when he keys up to call for uh, expedited help Ex- so that, expedited meaning meaning get over there bring, bring the cavalry yeah yeah um, and so at that point when I heard that I actually started going over there too and there were obviously a handful of patrol officers that are running over their lights and sirens at that point too and then he gets back on the radio and says, I've tased this guy twice, and it has no effect. What? Um, and uh, so ultimately, um, they end up getting more officers there, and they had trouble finding the cop because it was back in this wooded area, and so and they, they had trouble finding him. But fortunately, that situation ended up well. They got a couple extra officers in there, and they were able to detain the guy and get him to the hospital. Okay. Stuff happens with considerable regular. Not always are they naked, obviously, but sometimes they are, and usually that's a sign of uh, a psychotic break. Or well, it's drugs, almost always drugs, and that's and that's and that's a thing. Um, so let me ask you this: Who, what social worker, are you going to send to that that situation? Well, to that call, there would be no one. That I would trust. How do you know? You're a dispatcher. You're sitting there in the 911 call center. And you get a call for somebody who's in a home. And we get thousands of these. Um, who's not acting right. Who are you going to send? You're going to send a social worker or are you going to send the police? You're going to have to send someone who's prepared for the situation. Because you don't know what that situation is going to be. You start trying to send social workers to police calls, and what's going to happen is some of these social workers are going to get hurt, and some of these social workers are going to end up dying. Because these these people that you're dealing with, like I said, so much of it is drug-related nowadays. And I mean, it hasn't been a thing, but I remember some years back when something called bath salts was the big thing. Yeah. And uh, I tell you what, I remember there was a deal. I mean, we I remember that deal down in Florida where one of these guys who was strung out of bath salts actually ate the face off of somebody else. But I remember, I mean, dealing with some of these people, and it's crazy. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I remember there was one guy. This guy was probably five six, hundred forty pounds, and there were four of us on top of him, and he was standing up throwing people off him. Wow. Um, and I, there were terrible, and I mean, these, some of these police are the only ones who are equipped to deal with these situations. Hmm. So you start sending social workers to domestic disturbances and things like that, and people are going to get hurt. Hmm. It's just that simple. 
Yeah. Do you think that there would be a different response from people if they knew that an unarmed entity was coming to help the situation? From some people, yeah. But other people would take advantage of it. Hmm. So, yes, there are there, sometimes that, that would probably de-escalate some situations. Right. But at the same but time... the flip side is there are situations where more cognizant um, people would take advantage of that. Right. Because you know what? Um, like I said, a lot of people, 90% of people, are going to voluntarily comply when they see the police arrive. Because it's called, I mean, there's a, there's a use of force continuum that police agencies deal with. And number one is the very first tool we have is simply our command presence. And that in and of itself is going to be enough to gain compliance from 80, 90% of people. But that other 10 to 20%, guess what? That adds up to hundreds of situations a day where people aren't going to necessarily just comply. Right. So people don't understand the ridiculousness, I think, of Sending non-trained, non-sworn social workers out into the kinds of situations, the kind of unknown situations that police officers walk into every day. Hmm. So you think that aspect of defunding the police would also be ineffective? Certainly. Right. Um, could, could police officers, and you know, this is something I've seen just in the last... Ten years, five five to ten years, they've actually started um, certification programs for. Uh, I think I can't remember. There's an acronym, but basically, police officer police officers will go through this training with like Bureau of Behavioral Health or something, where where they're they get a little a week or so of special training for dealing with emotionally disturbed mm-hmm. people, things of that nature, and and they were giving them these little um, handheld devices where in the while the police officer was on scene, they could call into a uh, an on-duty psychiatrist or something along those lines, and and try and have them talk to the person through the screen. And I don't know how successful that's been, um, yeah. but I, would it help if police officers had more training um, in dealing with these situations? Sure, but you need to think, understand too. Is I mean. Most police officers, they go through six months of full-time training just to become a police officer. Then after that, you've got three months of training. Well, guess what? That's costing these cities a lot of money for the training that already exists. Plus, I mean, in addition to that, once you're a police officer, you're, you're going through, what, six to eight days, full days of, of continuing education training each year. To, um, so, yes, more training would be good. But there's a balance there because you know what? They need cops out there on the street and they can't have them always sitting in training. So, um, but defunding the police, um, it, I, I, don't, I don't think for a second it would work. And I, I don't think 
it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next six months in this country we'll put it that way to see what actually does happen because I think municipalities that try and institute this especially the abolition of traditional police forces as we know them I think they're in for an, an exceedingly rude awakening is there anything in in your field that needs to change that you feel that you feel like really needs to change that's not even talking policy training any, anything I think by and large modern day policing agencies of any size and you got to understand that really small agencies sheriff's departments or, or small town municipalities they simply don't have the resources hmm. to put forth and adequately equip well-educated well-rounded um, individuals to police at the highest possible levels. They don't have the resources to do it. They do the best they can with the resources they have. Um, but I think most larger agencies do a pretty good job of equipping and training their officers to go out and do what police officers have to do. Um, you know, we they we have every I think it's every other year we have um, things like implicit bias training and things of this nature. Um, and I don't think, from what I've seen, it's been very effective um, because you know when we have training like that, the people who come in and it's outside people who come in and offer this training. But you know what? My experience has been the people that they bring in to offer this training are simply putting forth an ideology, in what way? irrespective of facts. In, in, in respect to, uh, um, for example, the last one I remember was a couple of years ago. This gal came in and was talking about how um, I forget the exact details of it, but she was saying, "Well, you know what? There's certain reasons why." there's more crime in these communities and, 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 and I stood up and asked her and I mean well in our particular particular community you've got the black population is this percent and the Asian population of our community is the same roughly the same percentage of the community and by what she was saying you should expect that this this Asian community, this Asian segment of the community, would be engaging in criminal activity at the same rates as as the African American community. And the simple fact of the matter is, there's almost no crime here, and this side, uh, and yet here you've got a very small minority population that's committing ridiculously high proportion of the violent crime in this particular city. The black community, you're talking yeah. About. And uh, and you you present facts like I just like the the observations of this particular study, and they don't listen to you because they're just no that's not it the the, the problem is 
um, um, racial profiling, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's not. The problem is here. I just, like I just told you, I can, I can't name one instance that I'm aware of in six, almost 17 years now that um, any officer that I know made a an enforcement decision based on race. We don't do that. I mean, we're professionals. We don't do that. And yet they're, but they're, they're putting forth an ideology that yes, it's, 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 to use your term, systemic racism. No, it's not. It's cops doing their jobs, hmm. and more, which is find the crime and and uh, get the offenders off the street. Yeah. I. Uh, um, so, kind of to recap what you were saying, it's less about defunding and more about actually funding is what you're saying would be a, a proper solution if there is something in the, that needs to change it would be better training better uh, more money spent on police forces to better um, handle the the things that they see here's a deal um i spent six years in the marine corps um and X number of years now working for a municipal government. And my experience of also running my own small businesses and seeing other businesses is the simple fact that, as a general rule, government entities don't operate as financially responsibly as privately owned companies. So I hesitate to say, yes, we need to spend more money on policing. <laughs> and you know what? I make a living wage um, enough to where my wife is able to stay home and homeschool our, our children. Um, and so I don't know that, and I'm sure a lot of cops who, you know, if any cops hear this, they'll say, what is he saying? But, I, you know, I don't, I don't, throwing money, throwing money at a problem is always the government's way. Whether it be a federal government, a, a municipal government, a state government, throwing money at at, at a problem is never the answer almost almost never the answer you know what I think the answer is What's that? I think the answer is people need to sit down and have real dialogue hmm. fact based and truth based dialogue about what is it going to take to solve our crime problem in America because it's prolific it's horrific Crime in this country is absolutely horrific. And you know why crime is horrific in this country? I quoted Solomon Solomon a minute ago. I'm going to quote him again. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Crime is such a profound problem in this nation. A. Because... The education system has failed miserably to morally train America's youth. B, and even more importantly and fundamental to that, families have failed on a large scale to train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. C, um, the legal system, the legal justice system in this 
nation is failing miserably. And a big part of that is because because of A and B, there's so many people out there committing crimes. And there's no place to put them. There's no place to put them. And so, and this is one of our biggest frustrations as cops, is the fact that, you know, I work as a detective and I write cases on these people and just and I could give you a million examples one that pops into my head recently we had a guy um, he went on a rampage about a month month and a half he stole I don't know how many cars committed all kinds of burglaries just just tearing it up um, we ended up submitting 14 felony cases on this on this young man 14 he ended up taking a plea deal to nine felonies Guess how much time he served? Well, nine felonies. A felony? Nine, zero. What? No prison. I mean, he sat in jail till his trial, but no, he got no. He got a. He got probation. Wow. Less than two weeks later, guess who gets in a pursuit within another stolen vehicle? I, I, I just. I've got two cases right now on a guy. Back in 2015, one of one of the one of our detectives put. I think like 15 felonies on this guy. He ended up doing a 120 day shock. So he went to prison for 120 days, huh. four months, got out. As soon as he got out, guess what he started doing? So that in 2017, I put another seven, eight, nine cases on this guy. Same stuff, just stealing, stealing as he goes out, steals a vehicle, and then he starts breaking into storage units, breaking into everything he can. And uh, so I put another eight or nine cases on this guy. We couldn't get him. They finally, uh, some of our special investigations guys, got him out uh, one day. They basically followed him to a, uh, because you can't try and stop him in a vehicle because they're not going to stop. They're going to run. We can't pursue. We have a no pursuit policy, yada, 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 yada. So they got to basically trail him until he stops somewhere. He stops at the Walgreens. They jump out on him and he takes off. And uh, they, 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 they're able to get them. So after those first 13, 14, 15 felonies from 2015, where he did a 120-day shock, um, he racks up another 8, 9, 10. Um, and this time he goes away for, oh, almost a year and a half. He gets out. Guess whose fingerprints are turning up on all these stolen vehicles? That's what it is. I mean, crime's not dealt with in this country. Mm. And as long as you don't deal with crime, crime's just going to proliferate. Mm. Um, I, I, I really think um, the things that we've talked about today and, and uh, really the impact um, that it's made on me has been largely significant in how I view... Um, my, my how I view the police, how I view the things that are going on, um, and I think I can empathize with you in in a lot of ways. I think I can um, acknowledge how hard it would be to go out every day with with the mindset of I, I may not come home, um, and I and I hope that uh, we have been able to um, maybe view some other perspectives, but also bring truth and bring fact into them. Um, to have a better and a more well-rounded um, discussion. And I think this has been such a great dialogue, and I thank you so much for 
um, for for coming and and is there anything else that that you would like to say I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak my perception of truth into this very important issue and I appreciate your taking the time to address what I perceive and pretty much every cop in this nation and hopefully every American in this nation perceives as a very important issue 